I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast. Two thousand seventeen was the busiest Atlantic hurricane season for the United States and its territories in terms of landfall and impact. The science behind spotting and then tracking storms like hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria is remarkable. It involves satellites, sea level instruments, as well as data and samples taken by manned aircraft flying right through the center of the storm. In fact, Storms like what we saw in 2017 were sampled hundreds of times by Hurricane Hunter aircraft. On this episode of the FEMA podcast, we spend some time with the brave men and women who take on this mission throughout the hurricane season and have the distinction of being called Hurricane Hunters. The Hurricane Hunters are a specialized group of aviators. Actually, there's two teams, one from the U.S. Air Force and one from NOAA. Every year before the start of hurricane season, NOAA organizes a hurricane awareness tour throughout the Gulf Coast and the Caribbean. This is a free event open to the public focused on raising awareness of the threats that these dangerous storms pose and also highlight things like new forecasting techniques. But the coolest part has to be the hurricane hunters themselves. We traveled to Montgomery, Alabama to one of the five tour stops along the Gulf Coast and had a chance to climb aboard with the Air Force Hurricane Hunters. My name is Major Nicole Mitchell. I'm an Aerial Reconnaissance Weather Officer, which we call ARWO because no one wants to say all those words all at once. Um, So basically, I'm a meteorologist with the Hurricane Hunters, which is a a squadron that flies into different types of storms, not just hurricanes. Um, And we follow under the 403rd wing, which is out of Biloxi, Mississippi, in the Air Force Reserve. So some of us, like myself, are part-time, and then we have some full-time people as well. It's so great that you're spending time with us today. So, but when you say we fly into the storm, you really mean it literally. I mean, you're flying yes. into the clouds, into the, the hardest uh, part of the storm. Yeah, that's what we do. Um, so we will actually fly into anything from a developing area, what we call an invest area. We investigate it, see if there's actually that full circulation, enough to call something a tropical depression. Um, and then once it gets going, uh, we have more continuous flights in, t- in it from tropical depression through tropical storm all the way to a Cat 5 hurricane. And we actually in the winter do some winter storms over the water as well, like nor'easters. So we are here as part of the uh, NOAA's Hurricane Awareness Tour, mm-hmm. and we are standing right in front of the plane. So tell me about uh, the plane that you all fly in. What type of plane is this? Sure. So this is a C-130. This is actually the typical C-130 that the military uses. Uh, any plane that starts with a C means cargo. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a couple special things on for for us. So because it's weather orientated, we call it a WC-130 for weather. All right, how are you guys um, but we can actually take the weather equipment off of it and use it again to haul troops or cargo or whatever else if we need to. But there's 10 just like this one that are specially formatted for doing the weather mission. So if we have a couple uh, flights that we're having to do at once, uh, two, maybe two different storms at the same time in different locations, or one storm where we have to have flights in and out, we have enough planes so that we can cover all of that. Fortunately, though, we're standing on the tarmac and it's a pretty warm day and it's yes. providing a lot of shade because it's a very, very large plane. <laughs> um, and you're going to give us a tour inside, right? Sure. Should we go to that? Let's go. So this is uh, clearly the ramp of the plane. Uh, if they were using it for something else, this could open in flight. 
Um, I could just imagine uh, airborne troops yeah, jumping so that right would, out of this. Yeah, so that would be one thing, but for example, a few weeks ago, um, sometimes we work with other branches, so we were working with the Navy, and we're in the North Atlantic using the ramp to drop out buoys for them that they were going to use for research. Yeah, so I've heard that uh, a lot of the instruments, it doesn't necessarily just include um, aerial instruments, you know, we, the sea level as well, so that's how you get them out there, so drop yeah. out buoys. Yeah, so the buoys we drop, um, usually we're working with um, the Navy when we're doing that, that's not as much part of our mission. We have the sond, which I'll show you, and we drop that to get all the way down to the surface, what a storm is doing. Okay, so the ramp's in the rear of the plane, and we're yep. sort of heading right into the belly of the plane. Yeah. So. so we, um, this is the inside, and, and the thing is that our storm, uh, we only have to have a minimum of five people. So two pilots, a navigator, meteorologist, and a loadmaster. So this could be a big empty plane in the middle of a storm. Um, with no one in it, we're using a C-130 because it is sturdy and we get buffeted around a little bit. It has- Just a little? <laughs> Depends on the storm. Uh, it has prop propellers, um, which is gonna handle the weather better versus a jet engine, which would intake all that water and cause problems. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the lift that we'll need in a storm. Yeah. And then um, the other thing about a C-130 is we have over 14 hours of gas. And our average mission is about 10 hours, six hours in a storm, but then however long it takes us to get there and get back. So sometimes it it's over 13 hours. And so if we have the 14 hours of gas, you know, we have plenty of time to work with. So 13 hours uh, in- Is I a would, long day. I would understand, <laughs> I, would, I would guess it's pretty turbulent too, and it's gotta be a little exhausting, a lot exhausting, right? Yeah, so those storms that are, you know, I don't get air sick, it doesn't really bother me, um, but those storms, the few that I've had that the whole thing was turbulence for that whole six hours, usually it's kind of just going through the eye wall or, or here and there. But I have had a couple flights where really like the whole storm was turbulent and you're just physically exhausted after that, even if you're not airsick or whatever else, because your body's just, you, you know, you're just this, tired. You probably get this question all the time when somebody yeah. hears that you fly with the hurricane hunters, but how does it compare to like the average turbulence that you experience in a commercial plane? I'll be honest, I kind of laugh, you know, and they won't even use the word turbulence anymore, right? Yeah. They say, you know, we might have some rough air and I'm like Choppy okay air. come on it's turbulence um, but yeah a few bumps and everyone has to sit down with their seatbelts on and you know I'm sitting there going oh, well, but right. but I get it it's much safer to have your seatbelts on just in case so. so we're looking at some of the seats I mean you are fully strapped in the whole time not just like your seatbelt in a commercial plane um, so we're only required to have our seatbelts on and take off and landing um, when, when we see my crew position, you'll understand why I don't always have my seatbelt on because I've got my computer and then I've got a window that's just a little off to the side and I want to be looking out at actually seeing what the waves at the surface are like. So for me to kind of be twisting back and forth, um, a lot of times I don't have my seatbelt on unless it gets really bad and there's a handle at my workstation. So I'm a little bit more likely to be holding onto the handle and trying to type and then I can be, you know, kind of moving around a little bit. Let's take a look at your workstation. Okay, station. let's go. So we're headed up toward the um, front of the back of the plane. Uh, and then, of course, there's the cockpit beyond Cargo that. Cargo area. Of yeah. Plane, so um, the plane itself is collecting a lot of data as it goes along, and it's most of the data you see comes from the plane. 
So as we're flying through the storm, as low as 500 feet for a developing storm, and then as it develops a little more, either 500 or 5,000 or 10,000 feet, but we'll be inside the storm. So we're collecting data from the plane, temperatures, pressures, winds, all that stuff. Um, what I'm showing you right now is a drop sound and so the plane... It looks like a tube, uh, yep. almost like a UPS tube. <laughs> so, yeah. A poster tube. It's, uh, it's about the size of my elbow to the tip of my hand long, and it's got a little kind of parachute. Oh, yeah. It's really more of a stabilizer on it. But it's got instrumentation on side, and it's linked to the plane. So what would happen is we would drop this out of the bottom of the plane, and all the way until it hit the surface of the water, it'd be sending back weather data. Yeah. Um, so Are there like little trap doors on the bottom of the plane? So it's right here. Yes. See, oh, this, wow. there's this little tube and there's a chute out the bottom. It sort of looks like that, those tubes that you get at the bank. When yeah, you send the, uh, one of those old, what was it, pneumatic? Is that right, what they the pneumatic them? canisters yeah. that would take your check to the teller, right? Um, so like this one goes down. It does make a little funk when it goes out the plane. Um, and we use that especially in the eye wall to give us a nice wind profile on a vertical level. The plane already has the horizontal, so that would give us a vertical. And it collects all sorts of weather data, but especially in the center of the storm, Storm, we want it to find the lowest pressure because if you ever notice how they show storms, they always talk about the pressure because the lower the pressure, the stronger the storm. When the pressure drops, the winds will crank up in correlation. So we watch pressure very closely. So this is, gives us an actual reading on the pressure from the surface. Um, yeah, um, so um, at my workstation, I'd be so busy that we have people kind of helping us with some of those other elements because I literally have data coming in, and especially when we're trying to get the center of the storm, um, NHC gives us coordinates as their best guess based on satellite or based on the last plane that was in and their expected movement, but those are never going to be exactly right on. So we'll plug in the coordinates, we'll go that direction, but I'm actually using the winds to steer me to the exact spot where the circulation is because you want that center point to be exact. Um, if we're just using satellite to guess where the center point is, let's say we just guess, and it's, but it's 10 miles off, right? 10 miles off as our initialization point in the models Tomorrow, as you try to forecast the storm, could be 30 miles off. The next day, that could be 100 miles off. So actually, the biggest part of our job is finding that center circulation and actually following the wind. So I'll be saying to the pilots, turn 10 degrees left, turn 10 degrees right. We're steering so I can find that exact circulation. So, so I'm busy, and they're helping. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a short story. <laughs> but you know, you think about all the technology that we have, uh, you know, to, in, to, in today's day and age, right? We have satellites, and we have drones, and all different types of right. unmanned things. What's the value of having a, a human in the plane flying through the storm? Um, you know, the drones are always improving, but I, I think at this point, um, they, especially if it's something small, doesn't quite have the maneuverability to get in there and without a person in it, be kind of watching those winds and getting to that exact point. Um, 
We also have a meteorologist to interpret the radar and the presentation. So I can tell them, like, hey, I'm looking at the eye wall and it's doing a, a reforming cycle, or there's a double eye wall. And that's significant to the hurricane center because that means things in terms of intensification. And a drone isn't going to understand that. So right now it's still better to have people in. Do I think we'll get there someday with technology? Yeah, probably. Um, but we're just not there yet. Sure. And we're also not at your workstation. Yes. Yet, so. Okay. Okay. This big uh, piece of equipment. Um, and so it, it looks like one of those like 1940s <laughs> computer system where it's like the big base. The big of, IBM or something. Yeah, the, the big huge IBM supercomputer. Um, but it looks very rugged. Right. So, so really, the technology in here is far better than that. It's just um, a big metal container so that um, you can actually see at the bottom, it's palletized. Oh yeah. So if we sure, wanted to take- to the floor. Yeah, so if we wanted to take all of this off and use this like a normal C-130 again, we could. Um, so that's part of the reason it's sturdy, is that just anything in a C-130 and a big military plane is gonna be built that way. Um, the computer itself is the size of a normal computer. So this is the computer right here. Um, all the data would be coming in. I'd be typing away, you know, whatever we needed to do. Usually on this screen is where I have the radar pulled up so I can kind of see what's going on. Um, our system so that we can talk to each other because the C-130 is so loud, so that's our intercom system. system yeah. yeah, and then here at the top, um, these two items, this is our satellite uplink to the Hurricane Center. So anything that we send goes almost live time right to the Hurricane Center. Um, there's stuff parceling every 10 minutes, fine-tuned data, temperatures, pressures, winds, that just sends itself. Um, I'm always watching everything to make sure everything looks okay. And are so, you communicating back to the Hurricane Center so, as you're going? Or are you so sort some of stuff automatically sends, but then I'm communicating. Oh. So it, it's almost like email, except it's coming through satellite. Um, so if they need something, they can send me a message, as, especially in lesser storms, like a tropical storm or an area they're investigating. They might say, hey, we saw something weird on satellite. Could you just go fly over there and kind of check that area out and get data for us? Usually in a hurricane, it's so defined. We have a very set pattern, and there's actually kind of less direction in terms of that because there's not going to be anything too crazy that they're looking for other than the center of the storm. Um, but sometimes if we're close to a different country and we can't do our full pattern because we usually do legs that are about 100 miles out from the center to see how big the storm is, um, if we're getting toward another country or land, we might coordinate with them saying, you know, which way do you want us to turn? Is there something specific you're looking for on this side of the storm? Something sure. like that. So, I mean, so you talked about the path. So there is a definitive path that you plan to do. And where do you enter the hurricane versus come out? So we do a, a cross pattern. So through the eye, we'll come in from one direction, go out the opposite direction reposition and go in a different. So we've actually gotten each intercardinal. Um, so we've hit the sides northeast to southwest, southeast to northwest. And we do that because we don't want to just know what the center of the storm is doing, but we want to know how far out the tropical storm or hurricane force winds. Different storms are different sizes, so that helps us find out the size, um, which side is worse, maybe has higher winds or more uh, thunderstorm activity. Um, and then that X pattern, we do two of those, so that puts us through the eye four different times and in the storm for about six hours in the trend of all that, and it gives us a trend. 
So now we've seen each side of the storm at least twice and the center four times. So we can see, is pressure dropping over time? What's the movement over those six hours? Things like that that are valuable versus just one snapshot. I mean, when you put it in, in that kind of perspective, your 13-hour flight, right? That's right. what you said. Well, it can go to 13 hours. It's usually about 10. Okay, so your 10-hour flight, I mean, that is a very active flight, right. 10 hours. Right, so that's why I said the Loadmaster has a piece of the puzzle releasing the sond. You know, I'll coordinate it, but he helps, and he helps coordinate that data, he or she. The nav is helping watch the radar and run the radar because I'm, I'm doing data most of that time and also helping direct the plane if we need to steer a little bit to find the center. How long, I mean, how many times are you going up? I mean, is it every day or is it? It depends on, it depends on the season and what's going on. So last year was clearly a very busy season. Um, we have to have, by military rules, 12 hours of crew rest before. So, and um, our flight isn't just our flight time. We go in over two hours early, prep everything, make our plan for the flight. After the flight, debriefs, um, working with the Hurricane Center to make sure they got everything that you know they needed to get. So if it's a 12-hour flight, it's a 15-hour day. Um, so technically, they might not be able to fly us every day because you add in crew rest in the daytime. Um, if we're deployed, a lot of times we'll do day and then the next night and then follow, you know, and then the next day and do its crazy schedule. But it just depends on how much we have to fly and who's available. So talk to me a little bit about, from your perspective as a meteorologist, how the, the physical work that you're, the actual work that you're doing here on the plane connects with what the satellites are collecting and what the sea surface instruments are getting and then how is it all put together as a package? So they're all different pieces of the same puzzle. Um, I wouldn't say that we should replace satellites or a buoy or anything else. Um, you need as much data as you can get because a satellite might cease, you know, it, it, as I'm flying, it's, that's just a cross-section, whereas a satellite might have a broader picture. But I, being inside, can get a more specific pressure than the satellite can guess. So we're complementing each other, not one is better than the other. Um, with our data added to the rest of the mix, it, they say it improves the forecast by about 25%, which is a huge difference when you look at how big the cone of uncertainty is, how many people we potentially have to evacuate. So our data helps whittle down that uncertainty area and give a more targeted forecast. And even just in terms of evacuation, every extra mile that we can improve on they say it averages about a million dollars a mile to evacuate. So it's a huge money savings. To me, I think it's even more important if you're over-evacuating or over-forecasting because you don't have the best data. I think people get a little immune to it after after a while. Um, so if you're, you're raising the warning to more people than you have to because you don't have a good forecast, then is someone going to take it seriously when they have to? Yeah. So our data helps improve that forecast, and by doing that and by being able to target it, I think people take it more seriously because they're getting better data so they know when they hear a warning, okay, they're doing a good job in these forecasts, we got to go. We are going to the flight deck.
so it's hotter up here because we're, uh, you know, just sitting out in the sun today. Um, the air conditioning is not on, so my apologies for that. Is the air conditioning ever on in here? Or you, you know, so we switched from, um, this is a C-130J model, and we switched over for the H models um, in 05. And I'm actually our last meteorologist that flew on the H. Um, and so the pilots were all excited because this is what's called a glass cockpit. So you can see, you know, all the monitors are screens versus some of the old instrumentation that, mm -hmm. that they used to have. Sure. So they were all very excited about the upgrade. Um, for me, it was kind of the same weather equipment because of the pallets that I was talking about. Um, so what I was excited about was a much more comfortable chair, which is a big deal in a 10-hour flight. <laughs> a bouncing around. <laughs> a bouncing around in a hurricane. Um, and so we can, in, in those invest missions I mentioned, where we're a storm that's just developing, be as low as 500 feet, that's in the tropics. So the temperature is 80 or 90 degrees outside, it's hot, it's humid. If you were outside, those old model planes, the air conditioning did not keep up. Wow. So we would be just sweat through our uniforms. Um, so the two things I was excited about the J model plane, comfy seat, good air conditioning. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but as I said, a lot of other really I, I, important upgrades, but. <laughs> I, I guess I didn't realize um, you would go as low as 500 feet. I mean, that has got to be pretty uh, visually pretty stunning to see the amount of waves. If it's a suspect area or a lesser tropical storm, you might be that low. The, the um, parameter for that level is 500 to 1500. Mm. Um, usually we try and do 1000. We get that low if we're trying to get below clouds and actually see the ocean. And so my first storm flight ever was Hurricane Charlie in 2004. And I, so I'm a brand new meteorologist, I'm with an instructor. And one of the things we do that they want us to be able to do is look at the waves and know based on the waves what the winds are. So if it's just little waves, you know, not a lot of wind. If it's huge waves with, um, uh, they get green once they get that much air in them with green streaks and other things, you know, you know, it's a lot faster. So he's like, well, just practice looking at the waves and we'll do some other things. And so we were the first flight into Charlie and that was 04, which was a busy season. It just got eclipsed by 2005. Sure right. And so usually we fly stuff when it's still in the investigation stage that season before we could even get up into things, they kept upgrading them to tropical storms because, you know, they were just developing that quickly. And so we get in there and they're like, if you could do low level, because it's still, you know, a lesser storm. And so we're flying that X pattern and um, it was so far away that we were only going to have time to do one with our gas. Um, and the last corner that we came out, so to speak, was the northeast side, which can often be the more intense side. Um, so we'd flown through the whole storm and we were like, well, this is stronger than they thought it was. This is a good tropical, this is a good tropical storm, not just like a lesser tropical storm. So it's clearly still intensifying. And we flew out the northeast east side and I'm looking out the window um, down at where our workstation is now, because our workstation used to be up here in the flight deck. And so I was back there at the window watching the waves and I was like, looking at it. And I'm like, that's a hurricane. I mean, I know I'm new, but I'm pretty sure that's a hurricane. So I called up to my instructor and I said, instructor, I think you need to take a look out the window. 
And he, he comes down, he's like, oh, that's a hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, everyone's that's pressed to the windows then. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, um, years ago. You're right. and it was just, it was incredible. It was yeah. so beautiful because of the, the color of the water with the aeration. Yeah, it was green. Um, when the wind whips off the kind of white caps, it streaks it. And we call it with that green color, a shattered glass effect. It's just gorgeous. And of course, my camera was in the back of the plane. I'm like, oh, this isn't going to last long. Do I go and try and get the camera or do I just enjoy it? And I just sat and enjoyed it. Um, I mean, that is a, that's a view that right, very that, few humans ever get And I've never see. seen it since because we were so low. I've seen it from, you know, many, many thousands of feet above. Um, and so when we landed that day and everyone talked about it, they were like, okay, so we shouldn't have been that low because we didn't know the storm was going to be that strong. But you don't want to be that low because when a strong is stronger, stronger in the turbulence, you know, in theory, you could get a downdraft that was that whole 500 feet. Sure. So that's why we go to different levels when a storm is stronger, so you know, so that we have that recovery room. But for me as a newbie, I was like, do I get to see this every time? This is great. And they were like, no, none of us have seen that before because we're not usually that low. So. Should we go out? Yeah. <laughs> amazing tour of uh, an Good. amazing plane and. The work that you do is just really amazing for, um, you know, for the for the work that we do at FEMA and the emergency managers that yeah. are taking the information that you have. As I said, you asked me about the data in the storm, but that's one piece of a good puzzle. You know, we've done this tour for a couple days now, and we've had emergency people on the ground thanking us for our work, and it's like, well, thank you for your work too, because. Uh, they're, they're the people that help evacuate people, and, and so I really do see it as we're just all part of a big puzzle trying to keep everybody safe in these situations. Absolutely. Major, thank you so much for your Absolutely. time. Absolutely. We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast.